Hey, you're listening to the Religion and Socialism podcast, where we interview activists, thinkers, and interesting people to talk about faith, politics, and social justice. This podcast is hosted by the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm Sarah, and I'm here in New York City with Reverend Ann Cansfield. Reverend Cansfield made the New York Times back in 2006 when she, a new pastor, married a woman in a ceremony which her father officiated. Her father, who was president of a seminary, was actually suspended as minister of the Reformed Church of America. He was actually put on trial. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. She's now the pastor of Greenpoint Reformed Church here in Brooklyn, where she runs a soup kitchen and food pantry. Then she made the New York Times again just a few years ago for being the first female chaplain and the first openly gay chaplain of the New York Fire Department. So, Reverend, I want to start by asking you about the New Yorker of the Year competition back in 2015, which was hosted by the New York Times. You won first place with some stiff competition. You beat out the New York Mets, Lynn manuel Miranda, Brat City Creators, and the infamous Pizza Rat, which, for those of you who don't know, is a rat who went viral on YouTube for dragging a slice of pizza down subway steps. So what was your reaction when you first found out that you won? What was my reaction to being more popular than Pizza Rat? Yes, precisely. Well, I obviously was profoundly impacted by the knowledge that I had defeated Pizza Rat in a in a almost head-to-head competition. But far more than that, it really showed to me that if you are a part of a of an election election, in quotes, some sort of popularity contest, basically, where people have to go and vote by comment in the New York Times readers section, that it definitely helps to have friends and family who have opposable thumbs. So (laughs) I was definitely at an advantage to Pizza Rat. Um, it It was not a fair nor equal election between us. I don't think Pizza Rat was capable of lobbying or tweeting, tweeting yeah or yeah it that's really, true evolution really gave you advantage here it really did if you believe it, in evolution if you were a pastor if you're a pastor so i'm not so sure about that which pastors don't believe in evolution plus the benefit was my own father and my mom i believe wrote very glowing comments about how lovely i am <laughs> so when they changed and, their last names too no, yeah. I think that I think I, I think they actually just totally kept. I, they might have even had like mom and dad <laughs> as their. Uh, but it did. It required a certain ability to create a user profile on the New York Times in order to be able to comment. It was a lot, and I also think it it helped to actually be aware that I had been nominated. So, Lin Manuel Miranda, I don't think he had been briefed that perhaps he had been nominated for this. It was buried very deep in the... Um, in all the awards he was getting. In all the awards, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so there, you know, his mom and dad also were unable. Got it. I want to also start seriously, perhaps, uh, and ask about how you got to where you are now. You, at one point, were working as a financial advisor. How did you get from there to being a chaplain, a pastor? I uh, did my undergrad at Columbia University where I majored in history and women's studies. When I graduated, my mom called me up on a fateful afternoon and said, you know, your student loans are going to start coming due. You need to find a job. And at Columbia, like, I think 25% of my graduating class went to work on Wall Street. Hmm. So it was not a well-thought-out, like, sense of calling. It was, um, well, everybody else is going to work on Wall Street. I am a high achiever. 
It felt a lot like being on a hamster wheel. And then something changed during 9-11. So, yeah, 9-11 happened. And suddenly it was like, oh, life is short. Maybe I don't want to be on this hamster wheel anymore. When I was working for TD Waterhouse, I worked in um, Two World Trade Center. I had quit working for them in June of 2001 and had been deciding between taking a job for Morgan Stanley, which was on the 75th floor of, I think, Two World Trade. I ended up taking a job with an independent broker-dealer, Raymond James. It was not a very good fit for me because even though I didn't know what I wanted to do, I knew that I really wanted to have as high an ethical way of being as possible. And I remember just having a really big argument with the branch manager over, I think it was selling insurance products in states that I wasn't licensed. And much of that summer, I was kicking myself for not taking the other job at Morgan Stanley. Yeah. And the night before September 11th, so like the evening of September 10th, was when we had had it out on this final argument. And I quit. I quit with already having secured an interview the next day at a different branch. And um, so I was on the phone calling their receptionist to confirm that I had an interview scheduled when she said, oh, uh, a plane just uh, hit the World Trade Center. And so I turned on the TV and saw what was going on. And like the next five, six, seven hours were incredibly lonely because everybody, I lived in Park Slope at the time, everybody had already gone to work. I remember at like noon or one, I think I had, there was a, a, a friend of mine in the building who came home who managed to get back. But otherwise, it was just like, me and uh, kind of and my thoughts and um, one of the real kind of lasting memories I have of the the following five or six days was um, feeling incredibly useless Hmm. Um, having like zero actual skills or ability to do anything and having an overwhelming sense that if I had been killed that day that the only thing anybody would say about me, I mean, they might have said, oh, yeah, she's a nice person. But professionally, it was just, well, she made money. I mean, there really wasn't anything else to the job except for making money. Um, and I had taken one seminary class before. It was a class on um, biblical studies, but really it was like Bible content. It involved lots of multiple choice tests, I remember. And I had to read the entire Bible. And I have a really hard time reading and an even worse time with like multiple choice tests. (laughs) And the combination, like you should totally play Jeopardy against me when it comes to if like Bible is the subject because I'd be like, ooh, I don't know. So that one class that I had taken, I did so poorly in. And having like overachieved in college, I was like, oh, well, clearly I'm not supposed to be a minister if I don't even know like how many commandments there are. I mean, that wasn't the exact question, but it, was, it felt like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I called up a professor who lived in the neighborhood a week later and said, um, can, you, can we meet for lunch? Because I think I might want to go to seminary again. And he was like, oh, that's great. You're in luck. Tuesday classes were canceled because of what happened. And so you haven't even missed a single class. I'll pick you up today at four and drive you to class. And the, he, the way he said it, there was no 
there's no discussion. It was just like, I'm picking you up. You're going to get in my car. We're going to go, and I'm going to take you to class. And that's kind of how I started seminary. But I definitely am grateful for that that week of kind of being forced to reckon with what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And I think I had had a whole bunch of excuses that I had offered to myself about why I wasn't called to ministry. Most of them probably about being gay, but that moment, like 9-11 definitely was one of those, like, don't waste a single moment. Don't wait to make enough money that you can take your kids on vacation in 20 years. Don't wait. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like being a PK, so my dad is also a minister, we didn't have a ton of cash. And I, was, I think in my own mind, I was like, well, I wanna be able to like take my kids on, on a real vacation. Or, um, you know. Not a church conference or something. Not like a church that. conference, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I want to send them to actual, like, YMCA camp, not just the church camp. And, and at that point in time, you said you had some reservations about going to ministry because of being gay in the past. And right. So during that week where you were really wrestling as to what to do, had you already sort of reconciled things more or less or in terms of, like, I, you know, being a queer out person in the church or there's still a lot of question marks, but you just felt like I had you had to go forward. Right. Oh yeah. No, I would say I'm still like I still continuously catch myself working things out about yeah. being queer in the church. But at that point, I think I made a deal with God that went something like, "Okay, God, I'll um, you win. I'll go to seminary. Point made. Um, and I'm not going to be a pastor of a church." I will be like all the other lesbians I know and I who have gone to seminary and I will run like I'll go run a social service organization social like, work social work right type things but I will I will stay far far away from a congregation because that's where controversy happens yeah that's where it's totally not going to work out that's where it's going but that is some ways the path you ended up taking I mean, you're Absolutely. a pastor in a congregation. Well, let's just, you know, <laughs> never say no to God. That's, no to God. Right. I mean, if you really don't want to go and do something, the the trick is to not say no to God. Like, Yeah, I was doing some research and I was reading an article where you had said, you at that point you were or a seminary student. I think you wanted to get ordained within the Reformed Church because that's the denomination, I believe, that you grew up right, in. Yep. Pastor, your father was a pastor and the president of the seminary that you attended. And you said something about how if I had just kept quiet, they would have ordained me in a matter of months. Quiet in this case about your sexuality. Well, quiet in this case about getting married. Getting married, okay. But essentially that, which would be a public announcement of who you're attracted to and your lifestyle choices, sort of in air quotes. Yeah, I think uh, Um, getting married is definitely a newer, (laughs) like I hadn't, at the time I didn't think I anticipated it, but it's a different level of being out. Yeah. That... You, people can go and create their own narratives about you if you're not married. Even if you live with someone, even if you're, there's just something about marriage that is a certain currency. So I guess my question that is, kind of outed you, yeah, or so outed yeah, me. Yeah, it's for very sure. interesting to me to see that the mindset you you had going in was I'm going to take the sort of more quiet route, where of least resistance while still being in the church, oh, yeah. and then you, in some ways, choosing to get married, to ask your father to officiate, knowing, you know, certain social repercussions, which sort of ended up panning out. Like, h- how did that, yeah, so in at 2001 I, I, to, I'm a good know. girl okay. at heart. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm a rule follower. Yeah. I'm really a rule follower. I know people that look at me and think, oh, you're not a rule follower. It's really hard for me to break a rule. 
Got it. And, um, yeah. So I, I really like to, to be a good girl. So I met Jen, my wife, teaching Sunday school <laughs> because that's, you know, the all-American lesbian love story always starts in church. Right. I, I just say that to everybody. Like, go to church. Find your mate. Um, I'm constantly hard-selling church. with, that's Or maybe that's a soft sell. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> my pitch. Actually, my real pitch would be teach Sunday school, find a mate. So we met in church. We really connected around our faith and our values. And she was raised Southern Baptist. And I was raised in a really consistently Dutch Reformed family and congregation. And we, so we were both raised with this, like, you don't live together before you're married kind of thing. Mm. And so it didn't really leave us many options. We fell in love with one another. We wanted to make a lifetime commitment to one another. In the church, that means marriage. So we got married. And the timing, maybe we could have like put off getting married for a little while, but that felt disingenuous too. Mm. So I think that my notions of what a like a good girl does or kind of rule follower, rule breaker, I think it was in a moment where different rules came together. So mm-hmm. don't lie, tell the truth, do the right thing, don't live in sin. All of those, <laughs> like, good girls don't live in sin. And mm-hmm. at the time, I had started as the pastor at the Greenpoint Reformed Church, where the parsonage is on the second floor above the church. And I was like, that would just be awful if I, you know, lived with my girlfriend above the church. What is that actually saying? Mm. So, um, I kind of like the, the choice was sort of made for me. I didn't yeah, really. Yeah, got it. Okay. Tell, I mean, there's this whole, I don't know if you want to get a ton into it, but I feel like it's part of your story. What happened with your father officiating the wedding Talk to me a little bit about what that experience was like. I mean, it seems like you're you're someone who doesn't necessarily want the spotlight, but in this case, all the spotlights were sort way. of trained were oh. trained on you and your family. It was so terrifying. So um, yeah, so my dad it's my dad, and he's happened to be the president of a seminary, but he's still like my dad, and um, and he loves church. He loves the Reformed Church. He and my mom have been married for ever it seems like they like marriage and um suddenly a lot of people were really angry and the stress and the anxiety just just ran like lightning throughout the denomination over this and i think it was a lot of just it just hit on so many different anxieties that people had about the decline of the church or the mission of the church or I don't know all the anxieties, but basically, if there was somebody who had an opportunity to get anxious and, like, want to explode, it hit every single one of those people. And so there was, um, my dad got a lot of mail. It was still in the age before full use of the internet. Yeah. And um, everybody had an opinion. And everybody knew my name, and everyone was discussing it. And that, for me, was just really terrifying. Yeah. Jen and I joked that, like, we got so depressed. And what I really appreciate about the two of us is 
we express our emotions differently. So like when I get stressed and anxious, I get really angry and she gets really depressed. But together we basically like left a divot in the couch because we were just sitting there basically like watching TV or me being like on the internet trying to control what is completely out of my control, mm. being anxious over what was going to happen. And um, it was actually the most helpful learning experience I could ever have because having gone through it, it was really terrifying at the time. Now I can look back and totally laugh about and lots of aspects as, as of As context it. for people who don't know the details, you, know, you asked your father to officiate the ceremony. Father agreed, and then he was asked to resign. That right, so he was, he was fired by the board ways. of trustees of the seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, for which, of which he was president. Of which he was president. New uh, Brunswick, New, New Brunswick, Brunswick Theological Seminary. Seminary. And, um, and then he was put on trial by the General Synod of the Reformed Church in America, um, which because like he was gavel and court? or like, what's Yeah, church trial, gavel and court. Wow. Um, yeah, lawyers, and I got to testify. Like a win- you were a witness. I, I testified in church court that I was gay. <laughs> Did they ask you? How did they ask you to prove the well, evidence that you were yes. gay? Well, right, you know, yeah. But how how do they know that I'm a practicing homosexual? But it was a it was an experience, yeah. and it was like so. This was the national body of the Reformed Church that was meeting. It was a uh, it was up at Union College in Schenectady. There were just hundreds of people there, and it was like the main event by far that year. I think that there were something like. 17 or 18 overtures, which are the way that different groups within the church can lobby for the equivalent of a church bill, basically, to be considered, that related either to marriage or ordination. Because we really, like, hit all the areas that church people like to fight about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Since I had graduated in the summer of 2004, and was about to take my ordination exams when it happened. So my ordination exams were put on hold. And um, the the General Synod met and decided to, my dad will never be allowed to be a professor of theology again, which is an office in the Reformed Church. And um, he was suspended as a minister of word and sacrament. He had to make public restitution, I think, were the words that they used on it in order to... Um, mm in order to become a minister again. Is it the kind of thing where you just write heterosexual on a board multiple times to just... <laughs> Very close. <laughs> co- I, do rem- I do remember when he finally... So he got sent to a classis, which is our version of a diocese, because um, usually the classes oversee ministers. It's only the general synod that oversees a professor of theology. Because he was a professor of theology, his trial was at the general synod. But once they defrocked him as a oh, professor okay. of theology, mm-hmm. then he was sent back to a classis who was supposed to supervise him. And when the classis and he like worked out a path to reinstating him, one of the things that he promised was that he would never marry any more gay people. Was it gay people or just gay children? But I remember him being like, I only have one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Since my brother's very heterosexual. Yeah. But, um, and I, I, I remember calling him up that night. Um, it wasn't that long ago, but being like, yeah, dad, it's okay. You can just refer them all to me. 
Like, I got your back, man. Yeah. Father-daughter duo. Exactly. Yeah. To talk to me fast forward a little bit to the present, because I think most of the, the press is about you is about these kind of big highlight, sort of dramatic episodes. Um, you said now, looking back, that was a very helpful experience for you. Yeah, it really isolated for me. Like, for me, it was. it's always been easier to assume that people aren't going to like me or are going to hate me for who I am or what mm-hmm. they, who they think I am. It was so much more difficult, actually, to be loved. And so um, mm-hmm. while this was all going on, I had started serving this little church in Greenpoint that had been kind of left out to pasture for a long time. At the time, Greenpoint was not the cool hip-happening neighborhood it is now. Like, none of my friends had ever heard of it. And we're like, where are you moving? Oh, it's on the G train. Who rides the G train? Um, and so... I had been there for a year, I think. I'd been there for a year when I, I asked the consistory, the board of the church, if it would be okay if I got married, <clears throat> which I think I'm probably the only minister to ever ask um, their <laughs> board if it was okay for them to get married, but I figured it was a better idea. And they're like, yeah, sure. So I assumed when all this blew up that they were just going to be like, well, we don't want you anymore. Get out of here. And especially in the neighborhood which didn't seem like it was necessarily all that liberal or progressive or welcoming to LGBT folks, that they would be ashamed of me. And I think that was what I was most afraid of, was the congregation being ashamed of me. And I remember one moment where a woman from one of the other churches in the neighborhood called up the matriarch of of my church and was like, your pastor is on the evening news. Did you know that? (laughs) And the woman from my church was like, yeah. And the other one, like, in true, this is, like, such true older church lady fashion. She was like, well, I just wanted you to know. Right. And she's like, we know. Goodbye. <laughs> and when she, and then she, like, proceeded to call me and was like, can you believe that? She just, she, she didn't want me to know. She just wanted to, like, and, and I was like, but aren't you ashamed? And she's like, no, it's great. We're glad you're married. And that was really painful. Like, for me personally, it was far more difficult to be vulnerable and authentic about who I was and to be loved, not in spite of it, but because of it. So when she said, no, that's great, we're happy for you to be married, your feeling was pain, not Yeah, relief, it was like, or a- well, like, pain and relief, but, like, yeah. it was, if you actually think about somebody really accepting you for who you are, mm-hmm. when you're, like, really emotionally vulnerable with mm-hmm. like the things that you're most insecure about like oh here let me go and and show all of my insecurities right. it's, it's in life basically like emotionally naked right emotionally naked and then being like oh we love you why, why are you why are you ashamed of how you are um i had to grow into learning how to not be ashamed and it was a moment where like if you'd have come to me and been like hey how do you feel about being gay i would have been like hey okay yeah but I think it really highlighted for me how, um, yeah, self-loathing I was about being gay. And, I mean, I'll catch myself still being like, well, you look a little dyke and like, <laughs> I don't know. Or, like, there's just a lot. I think we we all have it about something, whether or not you're yeah, queer yeah. or, like, there's lots of things that help uh, that we are insecure about or scared about that that caused us to shrink away from people. And in that moment, like, I would have shrunk away if I could have gotten away with it. 
and they wouldn't let me get away with it. And it, as context, you said that you were, you said, you know, Greenpoint and people in your church are necessarily people that most people would think of as LGBTQ affirming at that point in time. You right, you're yeah. your neighborhood. So if your congregation is not made out of like yoga, macchiato, drinking, sort of, you know, the, the bourgeois liberals that David Brooks writes about in the New mm-hmm. York Times, could you describe a little bit about your congregation, your neighborhood and what and that and a bit about them? So the the neighborhood is really, I think, interesting in its diversity or lack thereof. I think a lot of times we think about diversity being racial or economic. In Greenpoint, especially when I arrived at the time, there were some, there were very few people who actually spoke English. I would say probably 80%, 85% of the neighborhood was Polish. And among the group that was Polish, there were differences between people who were first generation and second generation. There were some, there was a group of old time Brooklynites who had generations of family growing up in the neighborhood, primarily Catholic. And then there were newcomers who were mostly artists or creative folks. And there was not a lot of social crossover among those groups. Got it. So when I arrived, most of the congregation had been a really thriving Protestant congregation around the turn of the last century. And then in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, most of the Protestants moved out of Greenpoint, and the congregation really dwindled. And so the church was made up of just a handful of folks who were English speakers, most of whom had grown up in Brooklyn and were from Brooklyn, Um, most who did not have much of a connection to the Reformed Church in America, and I would say that's still the same. As the church developed, we started a soup kitchen and a food pantry, which is actually a great spot for cross-pollination of newcomers and old-timers and Polish folks and English-speaking folks, that it's an area where if you want to get to know people who are not like you, it's a great spot, spot to be at. And the congregation, as it's developed, is a lot of people who are new to the neighborhood. So it went from being a congregation that was a lot of old-timers to being a congregation that's more newcomers in the last 10 years or so. So so what excites you about your church now? I love my congregation. So the first thing that that it really excites me, and I remember the Sunday I woke up and I was like, whoa, if I was going to choose to go to a church in New York City, I would pick the church that I serve. Like, how lucky am I that I get to serve the church that I would want to go to? And um, it is a group of folks who are very high on authenticity and we're really trying hard to live like Jesus and to work it out about what that might look like. We're a group of people that tend to have similar values in terms of kindness and love toward God and neighbor. And I find the process of discerning how God wants me to behave in the world, interact in the world, it really thrives from having a congregation that is authentic and that feels comfortable enough to be like, hey, Anne, have you thought about this? 
or this is something that we could do better or I could do better or like you, when you said that you really hurt my feelings so the honesty the honesty and, and feedback um, and interactions yeah that's what you mean yeah okay I don't know how you split your time but you also serve as a chaplain for the FDNY and in yeah, another group of people another, that is very high on authenticity I was gonna say what overlap or maybe similarities and differences I don't know if you did a Venn diagram in terms of like what it what it takes to be a pastor and what it takes to be a chaplain, the kinds of people you interact with. Draw that out for us. So when I interviewed for the job in the FDNY, somebody asked me or maybe like prepped me with a question like, what do you think has prepared you to do this job? And um, it's actually a question that I really think about a lot because I actually think that being the pastor of a church in Greenpoint was really tremendously helpful in preparing me for um, working for the fire department. I started in a neighborhood where virtually no one was like me. I mean, I was not going to find another Dutch Reformed lesbian in that neighborhood. So I learned right away how to work with a bunch of people who I had nothing in common with and how to be a pastor to a community that was primarily Catholic. So the FDNY is highly Catholic. In background, and so is so is Greenpoint, and how to um, share similar faith tenets, but are not the same. Hmm. So that was really helpful. And then within the FDNY, there's a really high value on authenticity, so that in matters of life and death, they can smell it if you're fake. And so I learned how to be authentic and be okay with myself. I learned how to be, or I'm maybe continuing learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in like situations where I don't feel like I fit in but learning how to just be myself and I would say that the congregation in Greenpoint really taught me that it's okay to go all in and love people and I think before I probably would have really held back out of my own fears and anxieties and as a result of the church really teaching me like hey you're okay we love you even when you mess up we love you when you're successful we love you when you're sick. We love you when you're healthy and you get things done. That it was a really good preparation for the fire department because I think the fire department is similar. People might be surprised. Oh, you're a chaplain. You have to get these men to open up or women to open up and talk about personal lives, spiritual lives. Uh, like, you never really get a firefighter to open up. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Words are not not their love language. Yeah, but um, but I'm you know what is having drawing sessions. Right. No, no, no. We're doers. <laughs> doers. You do something. Yeah. Um, no, but the. I think the main thing is like if you go in with love, and if they know that you love the job. Like one of the things that I'm realizing is um. When you love someone, you love the things that they love. Hmm. Like, there's this guy in my church who is obsessed with letterpress printing. He's like 68 years old. He's been a letterpress printer his entire life. And he, like, if you get anywhere near talking about letterpress printing, he just, like, lights up and is so exciting. excited. I had no interest in letterpress printing before I knew him. But now I'm like, ooh, letterpress. Yeah, I'm not even sure I know what that is. But... But okay. you know what? Like yeah. I'm just like, hey, I love Earl. Earl loves letterpress. Letterpress. Let's go talk about letterpress. I, because mm-hmm. what he loves, I love because I love him. And it's really the same in the fire department that if you love the job and they love the job, you can 
make a connection to love one another. And the thing that I totally appreciate about the FDNY is it is really diverse in some ways. And the the actual numbers and representation of people currently don't reflect the city that we serve. And we're working really hard to change that. But even so, in an organization that large, there is somebody who is into something or has some ability or some background or some experience or some interest in everything. What are some of the things that... Republicans. Okay. Republicans. <laughs> uh, like, not just Republicans, like Trump-supporting Republicans. I, I was going to ask, switch to politics at some point. Yeah, but you know what? Like, I'm the luckiest of all the people. I can go and basically have a focus group of my own and be like, so what draws you to that? Why do you, like, why are you thinking that way? In ways of having, like, an actual conversation around things that can be really cantankerous. Mm -hmm. Now, with social media and the way we construct our lives, I think we often really, really silo ourselves. When I was a student at Columbia, I just hung around with crazy leftists. And that was great because it felt so warm and fuzzy and nice until they started, like, cannibalizing each other. But... Was that cannibalizing? Is that is that the yeah, word? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. The left well, tends you know, to do that. Let's, yeah. But um. But even so, like, it's a risk to go and interact and talk with people True. where you don't know if they think like you do. Firefighters are unionized; they're government employees in many ways. They traditionally side with the Democratic Party, but in the recent election, according to an internal poll nationally. 50% voted for Trump, 27% Clinton, and 12% refused to answer, which I think was unusually high. The head of the firefighters union nationally said the Democratic Party focused too much on identity issues and lost concerns that were essential to the working class. Do you have comments, thoughts, interpretations of the phenomena when you're doing this focus groups that these kind of issues come out? So one of the things that I found really profoundly interesting and insightful when I asked, like, what attracts you to Donald Trump? This was in maybe October, yeah, September, October. It was genuinely issues of national security. Like a fear of a terrorist invasion? More? Right, okay. right, a concern, no. around, yeah, a concern around security. I thought that was, a, it was an interesting bit of data. It was one of those things where even though I didn't think Trump laid out much of a plan for national security, the, the message wasn't getting through. When you were having this political conversations, I mean, in some ways, it's hard to separate the personal from the political, right? Like, you're standing there, female, queer. Was it hard for you to be in the room and think about these people are voting for a man who supports things that might undermine my personal security or safety, potentially? Yeah, I certainly wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, I think at the time I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is, I'm so lucky. I'm actually getting to hear, like, unfiltered... (laughs) Yeah, unfiltered thoughts, like they're willing to tell me their truth. And how um, incredibly blessed and lucky am I that I get to hold that truth? Hmm. I mean, they certainly must have known that, I mean, I am a obviously looking lesbian. I mean, maybe they made some assumptions, some probably correct assumptions about my political leanings. Mm-hmm. But there was enough love there that we could connect and talk, and nobody was going to, like, kick me out of the room. 
And I wasn't going to kick them out of the room. Yeah. What do you love about your job as a chaplain? Um, I think I get to work with some of the best people around. And um, I know some folks might be listening and thinking like, well, you just read those stats on the politics. And, um, you know, there are always going to be individual folks who behave in ways that I wouldn't behave in. But on the whole, people who dedicate their lives to the fire service and to helping others are some of the most generous, compassionate folks around. Mm. On 9-11, they all showed up to rescue folks like me who were just there to make money and paid an incredibly high price. I mean, we've had just funerals after funerals. I think we were averaging about one a week this year of Mm. men and women who are dying of cancer related to the rescue and recovery efforts at Ground Zero. And they they didn't stop to be like, am I going to hurt myself? Or they just didn't they didn't think twice. It was just, of course, that this is the right thing to do and we're going to do it. And that's what really unifies us is we all have some, I kind of refer to it as like a chip in our brain, that's like when something bad happens, we go to where the pain is and where the suffering is and aren't afraid of that. And it's, I used to think that everybody thought that way, and mm. now I'm seeing that that's a little different. Mm. I'm sort of curious how, how you felt about sort of doing this interview, this with the DSA, I used the S word and everything, knowing sort of the associations. Oh, well, you know, the fire service is we're one of America's best socialist organizations. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down. You should. <laughs> That's the quote that you wanted. No, it's, but it is kind of true. We come for everyone, whether or not they pay their taxes, hmm. and we don't care who you are, what you do, what you've done. Um, a human is a human. A life is a life, and we will do everything we can to save that life. So, I thought it was pretty. Um, I thought it was very strategic on your part. I thought that you had recognized <laughs> that. And um, it, for me, I enjoy that aspect of the fire service. I mean, that aspect being that everyone, no matter who you are or what your situation is when you call 911, is treated the same and is, um, is treated as well and with as much respect as we can offer that we come for to help people who are mentally ill and homeless we come and help rich people who are choking on pieces of expensive sushi it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how much money you have when things are about life and death so and we are entirely funded by the government. Yep. That's true. So uh, keep paying your taxes. Keep because paying. honestly, without your taxes, you really, if you look at what would happen if we just did away with all the tax structure, 
we provide a really important service. And it is something, especially in New York, where it requires an intense amount of professionalism and training and having the right equipment and having people strategically placed throughout the city who are capable and and well-trained and ready to respond. And um, and that's the reason why the FDNY is is at the top of the list for um, for being the top of the line fire department. It's because of our the investment that the city and other uh, government agencies make in in us that allows us to be the bravest and the best. And that's really good for the citizens of New York City, let me tell you. If you, or, you know, the visitors. Anyone who comes. Anyone yeah. who comes in New York, you want to have a strong FDNY because you never know when you're going to need it. Very last question. I know before the, we did this interview, you mentioned that you were part of the ISO when you were in college, maybe attended some meetings or something like that. I'm curious yes. how you reflect on, you mentioned like, you know, you used to hang out with these crazy leftists back in college. How you reflect on those days in light of the work you do now that you're a bit more in the trenches. You're not just talking about it, theorizing about it in, in the classrooms. I didn't know what was going on in the 90s. So, you, know, when you, were in you college, don't know what's going on in the 90s. I know, uh, I'm cl- clueless, you. clueless. Yeah, so um, the ISO was actually quite active on Columbia's campus. It's the International Socialist Organization. And I attended a couple of meetings, mostly because I think I had a crush on one of the leaders, which, of course, you know, when you're 19 is the reason why you do everything. (laughs) And they wanted me to get involved. I do remember selling their paper one day on 125th Street. And I think of myself as being pretty good at sales. It was was some rough... I did not make as many sales as I would have would have hoped on 125. How much did you charge for like, the ISO I can't remember. Paper. I can't remember it at all. But it was just like I remember going and being like, "Oh man, that was like wow, that was a lot of work. That was a lot of work." But then somebody wanted me to go. Like they they had very dictated what the topic were going to be was going to be at different meetings, and everyone had to take turns on speaking about the topic, and. So you were assigned a topic, and it was my turn, and I was assigned abortion. And at the time, I did not know really what I thought about abortion. I really thought, like, hey, I'm a lesbian. This is not my problem. I think it's probably most of what I was thinking about Mm -hmm. at the time. And I just knew that I wasn't prepared to, like, offer up the party line. And the party line just made me really uncomfortable. Probably in the exact same way that my branch manager in that, like, brokerage firm made me feel like I just wasn't about to do what they wanted me to do because it was, I knew that it wasn't in line with whatever my values were. And party line, just to clarify the time. I'm not sure about – I can't remember what I the party remember. line okay. was. In fact, it was just the fact that I had – that I could only use, like, their talking points. Yeah, it kind of happens. That Socialist orgs. Yeah, that I was really uncomfortable with that. It, in some ways, like, it just went went against some of my, like, deeply held notions of liberty and freedom, probably. Got it. That I was not allowed to sort of have my own opinions or lack of opinions, that I had to have their opinions. And so that was the end of my time, my ill-fated time with the <laughs> ISO. Got it. And 
now you're back full circle in some ways, back on Columbia's campus where we're during this recording talking to a socialist organization. Exactly. But now you can say what you want. But now I say what I want. I yeah. have, you know, a better sense of who I am and what I actually believe. Yep. And, um, you know, I would definitely say that I am proud to pay taxes and to participate in our government and thankful that I live in a city where the city council just passed more money for feeding hungry people. And I'm a firm believer in... Um, that trickle-down economics doesn't seem to work. Got it. Checking all the those, right ideological boxes. Those, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I kind of am, I'm always baffled that you can follow Jesus and not be a socialist. Like, clearly he was a socialist. He liked sharing food. He liked sharing everything. He told you to, like, if somebody asks you for one cloak, you should, like, give it to him. Mm-hmm. Like, he was obviously a sharer and a not so fond of like rigid governmental regimes either yep so so yeah on that note thank you, you for coming in reverend Aren't you Hansfield. Just gonna go, just gonna ask me, be like, hey you a socialist <laughs> yeah okay. yeah i'm a socialist because you know what i think jesus tells me to be that's the political philosophy if you read the bible if you the love jesus do, you love socialism it, sort of the transference effect we talked about well yeah. maybe not like but i think if you love sharing stuff and um and my life is better when um, when people have enough and we're a really wealthy country and we have enough and we have enough for everybody in our country to have enough. Yeah. And or what's what is it going to take for all of us to actually have enough? And that's going to be like paying people a living wage and um, making sure they have access to health care. And, um, you know, we try to live it out in my congregation. So, yeah, we do pay a living wage in our church and. Yeah, we try to make sure that people are fed, and hmm. we do our best to to walk the walk. And I um, I love interacting with government, and it really works. I like my public libraries. I send my kids to public school. Got it. I love it when you know when I cook and a fire happens that the FDNY comes and makes sure I'm safe. And I love having the post office work and. All these other things, like you missed, homage you missed that Facebook post that was basically I went through and I would challenge everybody to do this. Go through your day and think about all the all the moments where you interact with with um, something that's government funded, and um, you'd be surprised. Mm. I'll just go get on the MTA subway on the way back to my home that's provided by the city of New York now. Yep. So. Well, thank you again. Thanks. You got it. And that was Anne Cansfield, pastor at Greenpoint Reformed Church and chaplain at the FDNY. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Again, you're listening to Religion Socialism, a production of the Democratic Socialists of America. This podcast was produced by Devin Brusky, without whom this podcast likely would not be possible. I'm Sarah New. Tune in next month for more conversations about religion, politics, and social justice. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Religious Socialism. Thank you for listening.